This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is first-time guest, Mr. L. Michael Oliver. Uh, Michael is a brilliant market analyst, and I wanted to get him on the program uh, because he has some rather shocking forecasts for 2021 and into 2022, and I wanted to share his perspective with you. I will do that in segments two and three of today's program. And as we move into 2021, I think the one word that describes the current situation as it exists in a lot of areas of our life is uncertain. Certainly there's a lot of uncertainty that we are all experiencing presently. Well, when it comes to your finances, we have put together a December client communication, our December client newsletter, and all of our clients will be getting this in the mail over the next couple of weeks, in which we talk about what we think someone might expect going into 2021 and also provide some guidance as to what strategies or planning techniques one might consider incorporating into their own individual financial situation. The report is available uh, by going to requestyourreport.com. We thought it was important enough to make it available to all of our listeners, and we will be glad to mail you a copy of this report if you just visit requestyourreport.com and let us know where to mail it. We talk about what tax policy might look like going into 2021 and steps you should take now or early into 2021 to take advantage of some of these potential changes. We also talk about how Fed policy is likely to affect financial markets. That perspective, as I said, is available in this report. We are making it available at requestyourreport.com to all of our listeners, so I would encourage you to go get that free resource as we near the end of 2020 and look at moving into 2021. Now, this past week, past guest here on the RLA radio program, Peter Schiff, wrote a piece in which he talked about how the United States government is financing their deficit spending. I'm going to give you just a bit from the article. He wrote, over the last year, the U.S. government has borrowed over $4.2 trillion. The national debt now stands well above $27 trillion. There's no end in sight to the borrowing and spending, and that raises a significant question. Who is going to buy all the bonds necessary to finance the government's spending machine? Well, the government, for a very long time, has spent more than they collect in tax revenues. This past year, however, that trend really intensified. In fact, if you go to usdebtclock.org and just take a look at what the actual numbers are, as I mentioned, the U.S. national debt now stands at $27.3 trillion dollars. Tax revenue over the last year was $3.46 trillion. That's the income that the government took in. 
Official spending was $6.68 trillion, although actual spending was $7.67 trillion. In other words, there's about $1 trillion of federal spending that doesn't take place officially. It's not officially in the budget. It's off budget. But whether it's off budget or on budget, it is spending. So actually, the government had a bigger actual operating deficit last year than the government collected in tax revenues. That's significant. That is unsustainable. Now, to put that in perspective, let's just assume for a moment that you have a pile of money and you are approached by someone you know to say, hey, I need to borrow some money. Well, you've got some extra money. You'd like to earn some interest. You wouldn't maybe mind helping this person out. However, being a diligent lender, you want to dig into the financial situation of the prospective borrower. So the first question you might ask is, how much money do you earn every year? And let's say the borrower says $100,000. And I've constructed this example to keep it parallel to the numbers relating to the U.S. government's tax revenue or income and spending. So the borrower says they earned $100,000 last year. Your next question as a diligent borrower might be, how much did you spend last year? If the borrower answered $200,000, obviously red flags would go up. Then you might ask, how much total debt do you have? And the answer might be over $800,000. Well, how much income do you expect to have next year? And the borrower might answer $100,000. And how much do you plan on spending next year? And the borrower might answer $200,000. My question for you is this. Are you making the loan? Well, that's where the U.S. government finds itself. Not too long ago, the U.S. government could count on foreign investors to buy its bonds. But that is changing and changing rapidly. In fact, if you take a look at the percentage of outstanding government debt that was owned by foreigners just 10 years ago in 2010, between 55 and 60% of all outstanding U.S. government debt was owned by foreigners, Japan and China obviously being the biggest creditors. Today, That number is just over 30%. It hasn't dropped by half in 10 years, but it's pretty close. Now, as I just mentioned, China and Japan have been the biggest buyers, foreign buyers of U.S. debt, and Japan is presently the largest foreign creditor. Japan, however, is not buying many new U.S. Treasuries. They bought only $15 billion in the third quarter of the year. China is selling U.S. Treasuries. In fact, if you go back five years and combine 
the total dollar amount of U.S. treasuries or U.S. debt that China and Japan have owned, that number has been pretty stable. At the end of 2015, China and Japan owned $2.37 trillion of government debt. Today, it's $2.34 trillion. Now, as you all know, from 2015 until the present, the U.S. government has not balanced its budget. Instead, roughly speaking, it's probably added between 7 and $8 trillion in new debt. As a result of the U.S. adding all that debt, China and Japan own 13% of all outstanding debt in 2015, but today it's between 8 and 9%. So borrowing is going up. The government is operating with larger and larger annual operating deficits, and yet foreigners are not loaning the U.S. government the money to fund all that deficit spending. So the question is, who is buying it? Well, you probably know the answer to that question. It's the Federal Reserve. In the third quarter of this year, the Federal Reserve bought $240 billion in U.S. Treasuries. China sold $13 billion. Japan bought $15 billion. The Federal Reserve bought $240 billion in U.S. Treasuries. The Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, which is controlled by private bankers, now owns between 16 and 17 percent of U.S. debt. The Federal Reserve now owns about twice the level of debt that Japan and China own. Now, in the last 12 months, get this, the Fed has doubled its holdings of treasuries. It added $2.4 trillion in U.S. government bonds to its balance sheet, and most of that that has been added since March. See, the government is now at a point that it cannot borrow the money it needs to fund its spending without the Fed intervening in the bond market. And the question, of course, is where does the Fed get the money to buy these U.S. treasuries? And the answer, of course, is they create it. See, if the Fed wasn't doing that, in order to attract investors, the U.S. government would have to offer much higher interest rates to compensate these investors for the risk that they're taking in buying U.S. government debt. Essentially, without the Fed intervention, this market would likely collapse. So the Fed is financing all this bond buying, all this government deficit spending with money created out of thin air. There is no exit. If the Fed stops this, we have a collapse immediately. If they continue, we have a collapse in the future. You need to know what to do with your money. You need to get some good perspective. You need to not use traditional means, in my view, to plan your retirement. And for that reason, I'd like to invite you to get our 2021 forecast issue of our client newsletter. All you have to do to get it is go to requestyourreport.com. We'll be glad to send you a copy. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Just let us know where to mail your report, and we will get your complimentary copy out to you. 
I'll be back after these words with my guest, Michael Oliver. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the great pleasure today of having first-time guest J. Michael Oliver on the program. Uh, Mr. Oliver entered the financial services industry in 1975. In the 1980s, he began to develop his own momentum-based method of technical uh, anal- analysis. I'll, I'll chat with him a bit about what that is. And uh, Mike, uh, in 1987, he anticipated technically uh, the crash, the flash crash that uh, many of us people that have been on the planet for a bit and in the markets for a while are aware of. And uh, Mike is now the uh, uh, founder and president of uh, MSA. We'll talk to him about that. And he is the author of The New Libertarianism, uh, Anarcho-Capitalism. You can learn more about Mike's work at olivermsa.com. That's O-L-I-V-E-R-M-S-A.com. And uh, Michael, welcome to the program. I'm good to be on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you're very welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, let me ask, first of all, just for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with this at all, describe technical analysis in general, and then if you could, just maybe refine that down to your approach. Okay. Well, most people are familiar with technical analysis because you can look in the Wall Street Journal and you'll see charts. <laughs> in the financial section is a Dow chart, S&P chart, and they overlay a moving average. So... Technical analysis is usually price chart analysis with a few little tools attached. That's the orthodoxy. Uh, It's been around for decades, that mode of analysis. Uh, And so what you're looking at is is the face of a market via its price action. Um, There's some problems with that. And uh, on a a broad basis, one, when you're measuring human beings, when they form concepts about anything – usually involve measurement. You know, if you take your temperature, you have a thermometer. If you build a house, you have a yardstick uh, and a level. Uh, if you measure light, you have some measurement of, of, of the intensity of light and so forth. But they're all objective yardsticks. They don't change. In other words, you can trust that your yardstick that says 36 inches doesn't grow an inch a month and yet still tell you it's 36 inches long. Because if it did, it would be useless, right? Uh, right? Well, the problem with measuring price is you're measuring via a money unit, whether it's a euro, a yen, or whatever, or a dollar. The problem with that is the money units aren't stable at all. Uh, even prior to the recent massive monetary inflation that we've seen over the last six months, which is off the page upside in growth of money supply, the dollar quantities doubled basically every decade since 1959. Regardless of rationale or justification for monetary excess, almost every year it almost doubled. Um, Every decade, excuse me. So that's an extreme distortion in itself. Meaning, let's say you bought a stock at $300 five years ago, and it's at $350 right now. Even with that rate of growth in money supply, you're not making money. Your stock is up 50 bucks, but in real dollar terms, the quantity of the money units, you're down. And so to that extent, price charts, especially if you're looking back 
<clears throat> over a period of time, not just past three weeks, but the past three or four or five years, and making measurements based on what you see on that price chart, those are distorted measurements because the yardstick is distorted. Therefore, how do you get around that? Well, it's hard to get around it totally. What we do is try to take a step away from it. We measure price in its relationship to certain moving averages. Now, I don't mean by that what we popularly see in the financial press, which is a price chart with a moving average printed on the price chart. What we do instead is we oscillate the action of price in relationship above or below that moving average. So we have an oscillator with a zero line, which is the moving average. And let's say today's action in gold is uh, $20 over the three-day average. Today's low is $5 over. So we plot it that way. We get a different view of that market's actions, especially on long-term charts, than you get when you look at a price chart. And often we will anticipate via momentum analysis, especially if we go back and use annual momentum and go back quite a few years and look at a market. We see it, we get a different picture than the price chart guys do. And we argue it's a more accurate and more anticipatory picture. In other words, when an event's about to occur, usually you'll see it coming on a momentum chart well before price chart smacks you in the face. And so that's that's our basic methodology and the rationale for it. Uh, you can find more about it on the, on the website, uh, olivermsa.com. We have a category called method, and you can read about the basics of the methodology there. So what we do is we analyze for our subscribers who are largely institutional. They're uh, financial planners, uh, hedge fund managers. We also have a lot of high net worth subscribers who are, invest their own accounts. And uh, we cover all four major asset categories. That means debt markets, stock markets, commodity markets, and foreign exchange. Uh, because you can't just look in this, especially this day and age, if you're just looking at one market, let's say the S&P 500, uh, you're fooling yourself. The interrelationship between these major asset categories, the interrelationships are great. And you have to look out, instead of looking out the windshield of your car, you need to be looking out the left and the right side mirrors to see what these other asset categories are doing because they do impact mm -hmm. each other. And so that's basically our perspective. We put out about five or six reports a week, including a large weekend report, and uh, we cover those major markets. And believe me, we are in probably the most interesting dangerous and potentially massively profitable time in modern history. We're in it right now. And I think 2021 is going to be a record year for many, many markets in terms of violence. Well, let me just back up a minute, and then I want to get to your forecast, because I know our listeners are very excited to hear your perspective. If you're just joining us, we are chatting today with Michael Oliver, um, Michael's uh, work uh, can be viewed, and you can learn more about his work, I should say, at olivermsa.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. 
You know, you, you mentioned about the fact that these uh, monetary units uh, are, are really not good metrics. I mean, you, you really can't measure something that, that use use something for measurement that's changing in value. Mm-hmm. And, and I often go back and, and I've, on the program several times, I've talked about the fact that the average new home in 1971, when the link between dollar the dollar and gold was officially uh, broken, at that time, it took 685 ounces to buy the average new home. And today, that same 685 ounces would buy four new homes. So is is that really what you're, you're kind of talking about here? It's the, yeah, the degradation of the money units is ongoing and competitive. And, I mean, between the central banks. And uh, the Japanese, uh, for example, were probably the leaders in uh, monetary degradation over the last several decades. And their policies have been taken up by the ECB, I mean, replicated by the ECB to some extent, and, and the Federal Reserve. And now Powell is probably at the forefront of aggressive monetary policy, even more so than the Japanese or the Europeans, in terms of expanding the money supply, helicopter money, and so forth. Uh, And this is what will have an impact on a lot of markets, not just their price direction, but the socioeconomic factors, the human factors, will be affected by this. Uh, He thinks he's going to cure something by printing money. And there's various modes in which they do that, of course. Um, but actually, I think he's going to disturb things very badly because once you destroy the money unit or destroy its integrity, you're in effect impacting person-to-person contact, person-to-person relationships, ability to make plans that are viable because your money unit is so distorted. So when you... Uh, plan on doing something family-wise or business-wise, you're planning on it based on how many dollars is it going to take. Well, that becomes sort of a meaningless notion, particularly in in the rapid growth in money that we now have today, and that he has promised to maintain. Uh, He's even said that we're not going back to normal. And so that's his statement of intent, that he's going to continue this policy. Uh, You don't have to be a Austrian school economics uh, adherent or uh, a free market advocate or a gold bug to realize this. In in fact, one good example today is about a month ago, Ray Dalio, who's probably the world's most famous hedge fund manager, who is not a gold bug, came out with a uh, statement warning investors that they better not trust the price that they see on their stock because the money degradation has now gone ridiculous. And so even he has admitted we've now entered a new phase. Uh, and his view was that uh, the next five years should be very bad in, in many ways because of this distortion. My only disagreement with him is I think it's going to be largely seen in 2021. I think that incrementalism which is, you know, we we see trends in the market that are incremental. You go up for 10 years at a certain rate and so forth. Uh, I think you'll have a more sudden chaos theory type resolution to a lot of things that are wrong. Mispriced assets that have been mispriced by prior monetary policies, like let's say an elevated stock market that shouldn't be as elevated as it is. Um, Certain corporate bonds that are high-risk corporate bonds are now being bought by the Fed just to support them, uh, which means that the pricing of those bonds is not a free market anymore. You now have a bully buyer, in effect, Federal Reserve, buying cheap corporate debt just to keep it afloat. So you don't know what that debt's really worth. It's not a normal bid-ask relationship. 
so these kind of distortions w- will have human consequences and market consequences. And so it, it means there's both risk out there for people who have assets that need to be protected, and there's potential great reward if you exploit some of these moves. Well, and we're going to get to uh, what how we might exploit some of these, these moves that you see coming in the next segment. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Michael Oliver. His company is Momentum Structural Analysis, MSA. You can learn more about Michael's work at olivermsa.com. He also has uh, some sample reports there and uh, some uh, information about his method. I would encourage you to check it out. I will continue my conversation with Mr. Michael Oliver when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. Michael Oliver. Uh, Michael's company is Momentum Structural Analysis. You can learn more about his work at olivermsa.com. And, uh, Michael, I know after the last segment, the listeners are very excited to uh, get your forecast. So given all the money creation that we're seeing, or to use your term, the uh, money degradation that we're seeing, uh, how do you see the precious metals market, specifically gold and silver, performing uh, moving ahead? What are you telling your subscribers? Well, we uh, we flip-flop on gold and silver over the lifetime of MSA. We've gone from bull to bear. We t- turned bearish in 2012 and not far off the highs. Gold was up at 1900 1800 And we didn't turn bullish again until February of 2016, Right after it made its low in the 1,054 level, it came up to 1140 in price in February of 2016. We turned long-term bullish and have not changed our view since. There have been many pullbacks in gold over the last several years, you know, $100, $200 drops, but they're all in the context of an uptrend as we define it. Many price chart folks who are watching gold get scared every time it do- it drops, but it's all part of a breathing process in our, our assessment. And we're quite bullish on gold. We think gold is likely to see, uh, this is a ballpark guesstimate, in the next year or two, eight, uh, uh, $8,000 to $9,000 an ounce. Now, that sounds ludicrous, but that would stand by that. Silver will outperform gold. Uh, by our measurement, silver has shifted from an underperformer especially over the last four or five years, it's def- definitely underperformed gold. Uh, to Now it's an outperformer. And so the, the poor man's gold, so to speak, I think is probably the better place to be. You can, that market, those markets have various vehicles. You know, you, there are ETFs, there's gold miners, silver miners, uh, there's bullion itself, there's coins. So each investor has to pick what risk appetite he's got and therefore what medium of investment in that arena he wants to use leveraged or non-leveraged, et cetera. But we think that's going to be the outperforming asset category. Now, we think also that the commodity asset category in general, let's say grains, meats, uh, copper, uh, crude oil, so forth, they've been under a lot of pressure since 2011, just like gold dropped in 2011 through 2015, 16. So did commodities. During that time, the stock market was rising, so stocks were better than commodities. 
But commodities, we argue, have bottomed and are now in an emergent bull market as a category. Um, oil has crossed levels that we need to see it cross. Uh, copper did months ago. The grains have all broken out. So is it, in unison, we're seeing the subsets of the commodity category turn up. Now, you could say, well, that's because the fundamentals of each market turned up. No, it's largely because of the monetary degradation. Investors ultimately guide where that massive money flow goes. Sometimes they'll put it into the stock market. If the stock market's cheap and has had a bear market and then the Fed provides the money, they'll buy stocks with it. They did that in 2009 and so forth, and we generated an 11-year bull market so far. But as was the case back in the late 1970s, gold went from a low reaction low of $103 in 1976 up to 850 in early 1980. So in a matter of three and a half years, it rose that much. After it started its bull trend, about a year and a half after it started it, the commodity category, as measured by the Commodity Research Bureau Index at the time, turned up as well and coattailed the gold market. And so we had a situation from, let's say, about 1977 through 1980, where you could bought commodities and made a lot of money or commodity-related assets, stocks that produce commodities, for example, copper miners, silver miners, grain companies, etc. cetera. Uh, and yet during that time, while they were printing money, if you recall, it was a recession, global recession back in the mid to late 70s. Uh, so the central bank banks were very aggressive. But the money didn't go into the stock market. The stock market effectively went nowhere until 1982. It was a wasteland. But commodities provided a massive bull market. I think that's effectively where we are again now, where smart money is moving out of the stock market and moving into lower risk, higher reward potential markets such as commodity markets. And uh, it, you don't have to use futures to participate in this. There are ETFs on various commodities, uh, though we still think gold and silver will outpace the commodity category in general. But there are also a lot of stocks that are vastly underpriced that are in these sectors. For instance, you look at some charts of uh, ETFs on oil sector stocks. XLE is one example. XOP is another. OIH, these are ETF uh, in the oil sector. They've been beat off the page for the last five or so years while the stock market's been rising. So though they're stocks, they haven't behaved like the stock market. And we think it's about to flip now where these undervalued oil sector stocks or copper miners and so forth are about to advance and advance contrary to maybe a stock market decline. So we think that's a place that investors need to look is the vastly beat up, deflated uh, commodity related stocks. And we think the percent opportunity there is enormous. So if you have, Michael, uh, let's just take an, a, a retiree that's, that's affluent, uh, they've accumulated some money, they uh, now want to have a, a, a comfortable, stress-free retirement, uh, they want to be able to pull some income from their portfolio, what kind of advice would you be giving somebody like that, given the current circumstances? Well, we, we steer clear in, uh, because we're not financial advisors, we're not financial planners, we just put out research on markets, so we call markets. And... Each subscriber or investor needs to, on his own, maybe take that information to his financial planner or make his own decisions as to which vehicle is appropriate for him, given his, his net worth, uh, his, his risk appetite, and so forth. 
But there are ways unleveraged where you can participate, for instance, in these oil sector ETFs or, or copper mining ETFs and so forth, or gold miners, where you're not, you're not using leverage at all. You're simply buying the ETF that owns the miners. You can also do these leverage because you can buy call options on them and out, go out a year and buy some call options. So you're using some leverage to that extent. You make more money than you would just owning the ETF. But the decision as to which vehicle and how much of it and so forth, that's up to each investor, and we don't guide them in that regard. We simply analyze the markets and say, okay, the oil sector is turned up, and we define it with numbers. We don't just uh, wave our hand. <laughs> we, we, repli- we share the charts. We, we update the charts periodically. So once the trend emerges, the subscriber can monitor you know, the status of that trend. Um, but we think it's it's a great opportunity time, and uh, and frankly, there's a lot of asset managers who, again, who are not gold bug types, who are not uh, necessarily antagonistic to central banks even, but suddenly are becoming aware that things are changing big time because of monetary policy, and therefore they're not looking at inflated stock market indices like the Nasdaq 100, which, by the way, is advanced massively compared to any other index in the world. Uh, and it's done it with the front-end holdings of the index, namely Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, and so forth. So it's a very narrow leadership there. To some extent, it's 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 fake in the sense that the, you, you go out further in the index and the other holdings of the index, which are less weighted, and they're not performing like the NASDAQ 100. So it's, it's very narrow leadership creating these good-looking price charts. Uh, and we think that they're vulnerable. Um, and we think the, quite the opposite on, uh, again, on like energy sector, gold miners, and so forth. So my guest today is J. Michael Oliver. Uh, Michael's company is Momentum Structural Analysis. You can learn more about his work at olivermsa.com. So, Michael, if I'm uh, inferring what you're saying uh, correctly, uh, you're bullish on some of the commodity-related stocks, but if you look at somebody who's investing in, a, in an index fund, uh, maybe based on the S&P 500. Um, what's your forecast for, for investments like that? Well, I'll give you a fundamental comment, and we're not fundamentalists. We don't allow that to get into our work. Uh, we, we have our concepts, background concepts, but we don't allow it to guide our analysis. Uh, so right now we're faced with the possibility of uh, two possibilities on the S&P as far as I'm concerned. Sideways, like happened to the stock markets back in mid to late 70s, while commodities went up, it didn't help the stock market. They didn't collapse, but they didn't go anywhere. Or the S&P and NASDAQ go down. And we're focused most on the NASDAQ 100 right now because, frankly, it is the sole leadership index among the developed economy indices that is so far out front with its beating its chest <laughs> on the charts uh, that if it fails, if we can define a downturn in Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, etc., if we can f- find a downturn in the front end of that, that index, of that leadership index, we think the market will follow it, which the broad stock market will follow it down, probably to a lesser extent than it goes down because it was more inflated than was, let's say, uh, the Dow Jones Industrials. But we think they'll go in unison. Again, the choices are sideways, wasteland like the late 70s, or down. My bias is probably down. 
But despite that down in the broad stock market, we don't think that these other sectors that have already been beat up, like the oil and the copper and so forth and so on, will go down with it. We think they will trend contrary to it. So uh, there are parts of the stock market that are worth looking at. But in terms of the broad market, I think it's highly risky. And um, the potential for downside is uh, pretty good. So in the time we have left, uh, Michael, we've got uh, just maybe a minute and a half left or so. Any forecast on U.S. Treasuries? Yes, that's a little confusing issue. We we turn bullish on the Treasury bond market. We monitor the 30-year futures, T-bond futures. Uh, back in December of 2017, price then was a, see, it was a 140 area. They shot up to a high in early this year of 195 on T-bonds. Now, as price goes up, yields go down. Okay. Uh, they've since pulled back pretty sharply. We're, we think there's a risk here of, one, higher interest rates are coming. We're pretty sure of that, meaning bonds are going down. Okay. But I think there's a dangerous uh, situation pending here. If you do get a sharp drop in the stock market again at some point in the next several months where you suddenly get a vacuum of 20%, 30%, there will be a rush to buy T-bonds by investors who are panicked just like they did early this year. And so the risk of being bearish on T-bonds right now is that, yeah, maybe in the long run you're going to be right, meaning rates are going up, prices are going down. But there's that distinct risk that if you get a, a mini vacuum, and let's say the NASDAQ 100, and you break these leadership stocks down, that it could be a, a decent dimension and, and it pretty quick as well. And the quicker it is and the deeper it is, the scare, more frightened are the investors, and they rush to T-bonds, to T-notes, and so forth. So there is that risk of one more rally, one more drop in yields in the government debt markets based solely on flight to, uh, flight to safety. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. The clock says we're out of time. My guest today has been Michael Oliver. Michael's company is Momentum Structural Analysis. You can learn more at olivermsa.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, Michael, uh, amazingly fast that 25 minutes went. I'd love to have you back down the road, and uh, I thank you, and I know the listeners thank you for joining us today. And thank you, Dennis, very much. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. Thanks again to my special guest today, Mr. Michael Oliver, for joining us on today's program. As I mentioned in the first segment, the clients of our company are getting a December newsletter in their mailboxes here in the next couple of weeks. And the title of the newsletter is Capitalizing on Uncertainty. And in it, we talk about tax planning strategies that you might consider moving into 2021, what to expect in 2021, how Fed policy is likely going to affect you. And if you'd like to get a copy of this report, again, if you're a client, you'll be getting it uh, in the mail automatically, but we'd like to make it available to all of our listeners. All you have to do to request it is go to requestyourreport.com. Again, the website is requestyourreport.com. We'll be very glad to send it to you. You know, I want to give you just a bit in this segment from uh, that issue. And based upon my study of history, 
and going back to the book New Retirement Rules, which was written five years ago, uh, in that book I talked about the fact that monetary policy would have to be uh, become more extreme just because the government was spending a lot more money than they were taking in, and that trend was likely going to continue. Well, that's exactly what's happened. And while money creation has occurred many times over the course of history, this is the first time, historically speaking, that every currency in the world has been a fiat currency when this excessive money creation is taking place. Now, what that means is there's not one currency in the world backed by something tangible like gold or silver, as has been the case throughout much of history. Central banks now create money at will, and because there is seemingly rabid interest in more massive government spending programs, I expect that the warning issued by Thomas Jefferson over 200 years ago will now, probably in the near future, come to pass. This is what Mr. Jefferson said, and I quote, If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency— First by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the very continent their fathers conquered. Now, we have definitely ignored these sage words from Mr. Jefferson, and now it seems that his prediction is playing out in real time. Massive money creation will have to lead to price inflation. We talked about that in the last two segments with Michael Oliver. However, once the inflation subsides, deflation, as Mr. Jefferson suggested, will have to kick in. Now, with this inevitability in mind, let's look at a couple different asset classes briefly. And again, if you would like to read this report in its entirety, you can request it at requestyourreport.com. Now, let's look briefly at real estate. Uh, I do expect moving into 2021, commercial real estate will perform poorly. There have been lockdown responses to coronavirus that have destroyed many businesses that will never reopen, and other businesses have now gone to operating 100% remotely. These factors will likely make commercial real estate, in my view, underperform. Residential real estate in some areas, might continue to perform reasonably well in the short term because there is literally an exodus taking place from big cities to suburban and rural areas. So I believe that barring direct government or Fed intervention in the residential real estate market, we may be close to the peak in residential real estate. And there was an article on Bloomberg recently that supports this theory. Bloomberg reported that the median down payment for a single-family home is $20,775 in the third quarter of 2020. That is a 69% increase from the median down payment of $12,325 just one year ago. Now, that just means that lenders are now starting to tighten lending standards and become more conservative in light of current economic conditions. So, By the end of 2021, I expect that real estate will have peaked if it has not already peaked. So now is a good time, as I talk about in the report, uh, to potentially think about selling some real estate. Uh, 
if uh, we, we see some tax law changes, there have been some proposed changes relating to 1031 exchanges as well. Now, as far as stocks are concerned, um, I certainly concur uh, with Mr. Oliver's uh, assessment in the last segment. Uh, when you take a look at stock valuations, they are now very inflated. And one of the metrics I like to use is to calculate the value of a stock index. I'll use the Dow for an example in gold. If you go back to calendar year 2000, if you go back 20 years ago, 20 years ago the Dow reached nearly 12,000. The price of gold at the time was $270 per ounce. So if you take the Dow value of 12,000 and divide by the gold price of $270 per ounce, you get a Dow to gold ratio of about 44. Today with the Dow at about 30,000 and the price of gold at about $1,800 per ounce, the Dow to gold ratio stands between 16 and 17. So if you look at this Dow to gold ratio at these two points in time, back in calendar year 2000, it took 44 ounces of gold to buy the Dow. Today, it takes only 17. So priced in gold, which is what historically been real money, stocks are worth less than they were 20 years ago. Why have dot stocks gone up nominally? It's due to the degradation of the dollar, as Mr. Oliver stated in the last segment. Now, if you'd like to get some ideas as to where we're going in 2021 and some strategies that you might consider, I would like to invite you to get our December newsletter. Uh, the December newsletter is titled Capitalizing on Uncertainty. You can request the newsletter at requestyourreport.com. You can also, for additional resources or to listen to the podcast version of this program, visit our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The website, once again, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week, but I'll be back again next week. <laughs> 